Blog Talk Radio. Excited today. We have an amazing show. Please excuse me. It is a we're having a hot spell out here, and it's been a little bit draining and tired. But we are ready for a rocking show. We have Steve Garvan, Garvin Management, and also the International um, Music Managers Forum. He is one of the heads in that area too. He is going to shine a light with us on his career journey in the music industry, why he loves it, and also. You know, we're going to get on the conversation about the music industry itself. So this is quite exciting for us today. Then we have Raymond Wang, TEDx youth speaker. That's right, a TED speaker at 17. Four different inventions. Uh, top 20 under 20 in Canada. Uh, inventions that are going to take this world by storm. 17 and still a regular kid. It is the coolest thing. Yes, I said the coolest thing. Okay. So we're going to bring on Jay Logan without a doubt. Hey, Jay, what's going on today, my friend? Oh, everything is um, what's going on out here in San Francisco. Um, we're just enjoying all the beautiful lights and Christmas activities. Um, pretty good. You know, people are responding very good to this Christmas year. So everything is going great out here in Frisco. Well, you know, I have to say Merry Christmas to you, my friend. Another year hey. has gone by. Do you know that today is exactly the day that we launched Listen and Give, Jay, four years ago? Wow. That's a that's a that's a very good achievement there, you know. So yeah. that's wonderful and, to know that. Yeah. And and then, you know, we joined together with Savoy, your organization, and you know, we're going on four years together. I mean, this is amazing. I'm really excited about it. And, uh, folks, if you hear Jay and I tired, it's really because it is very hot where we are. <laughs> so, Jay, we we got to rev up the spirit, okay, because we have a great person yeah. coming on, and I'm excited about it. And a 17-year-old, can you imagine, Jay, a 17-year-old guy who's created so many inventions. And then Steve Garvan, I mean, and he's our Listen Give advisor. You know, I didn't realize that, Jay. Right before Christmas, our Listen Give advisor's on, too, and Savoy advisor. So, you know, I'm pretty excited about this, okay? So any... Yeah, hold up. I got to get some eggnog out the freezer. This is a great show. Can I... Okay, I got it. Thank okay. you, girl. You got the eggnog? Did you spice the eggnog, I spice up the show. We ready to... Yes, let's go. I spiced it up. <laughs> Okay, and did you did you put a, you didn't put anything in it? Did you? No eggnog and coffee. We're gonna have this show hyped, and we're gonna do this thing. I'm I'm ready to go. Okay, so no. Okay, as long as you didn't strike it. Okay, we're ready to go. Okay. <laughs> yes. Hello, Steve Garvan. How are you? Good, and it's a true white Christmas here. It's been snowing off and on for about four or five days, and it's just beautiful out. Well, you know, Steve, it's a little unfair that you're teasing us with this because we don't have, you know, we don't have it. 
Right, and so, you often do, but not this year, huh? <laughs> and you see, Chase, he's, he's teasing us more, okay? It's rubbing it in, rubbing it in. Now, I do want you guys to believe this. Literally, a moose ran down, ran down the street in front of my house yesterday morning. <laughs> okay. And right. you used the moose thing, too. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, you know, um, I have to tell you, Steve, this is a bit unfair, okay? We're sitting in 60-degree weather here, okay? I just have right. to let you know that. You know, I mean, I know you want to It's still a wonderful but... Christmas. It's still a yes, wonderful Christmas. Yes, it is. You know, um, but, you know, see, when the snowblowers are not even working for the people to actually um, go skiing, you know that there's an issue. <laughs> I hear you. Well, you can think of Christmas in the Caribbean or something like that. That's true. I like that, Steve. I really like that. Well, Steve, we're really going to get right into the show with you, if that's okay with you. And Go for it. We want, yes, and the only thing we ask, we have a request of you, Steve, is that you tailor your answers to the questions because you have so much information that we want to get to with you about your career and everything that we don't want to let all the goodies out. Is that okay with you, Steve? Yep, I'll do the best I professionally can. Okay. <laughs> Well, we want you to have fun, too, now, Steve. Absolutely. Okay. That, that, that's most important. And then we'll go back to the moose and everything. You must send us pictures about that because we, we didn't even know that that even existed. We thought that was only in the movies. Or northern so, exposure. <laughs> so, you know, one of the things that we want to ask you about, Steve, is we would, you know, we'd love to know, if you would let our audience know what kind of work you do. Let's start off as simple as that so that they get a, 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 an idea of the work you do on a daily basis. Okay. Yep. Um, I serve as an artist manager in the traditional sense, meaning I, uh, the artist, whether it's a band or an individual, is the owner of their business and their manager is their CEO, meaning in charge of all the operations, whether that's publicity, social media, radio promotion, uh, interacting with a booking agency, a label, and all the departments of the label if that's involved, and just helping them with strategic business development and marketing to uh, grow their career or um, sustain their career. And that's a number of the people I've worked with have had long careers. They're not necessarily superstars, but they've had sustainable careers, and that's one of my primary goals. I also serve, as you mentioned, uh, with the International Music Managers Forum. We now have 25 country chapters around the world, and also I'm on the board of the MMF in the U.S. and serve as their rep to international. Um, that's that's it in a nutshell. Well, you forgot one other thing, Steve. Yes. That we're excited about. We get to have you as a board advisor. Yes, and I'm very honored for that, too. Yes, we are really excited to have someone like yourself as a board advisor. So um, I know Jay has a question for you, Jay. Yeah, I get to ask the board advisor stuff. This is a great show. I just love it, Steve. Um, <laughs> Steve, what made you get into this music industry, and did you always think you'd be doing this kind of work? I did always think that since I was a teenager, literally starting with hanging out with friends that were in bands. I was uh, literally the 12-year-old kid who wanted to read or did read Billboard, not the one up on stage wanting to play the guitar. And I started in um, school and uh, put on dances a long time ago. Then in college, put on concerts in a very unusual situation. 
I graduated quickly from that to a booking agency in New York, but realized within a year or so that I was really my brain and thought process was more oriented toward the overall uh, scheme of management for artists' careers rather than being a booking agent. So I did change that early in my career, and I've been a manager ever since. Although for a number of my colleagues, what's really changed a lot in the last five to seven years is, um, and I have a mix myself, instead of all just the traditional commission structure and working with musicians' uh, overall revenues, a lot of us now are actually doing project management for some of our clients. So that's a big fundamental change, but it's still part of the continuum. And um, I've I've loved this. I, I did take a... Uh, an amount of time out in the very middle of my work life and worked for a couple of large book publishers doing, in a sense, the same work in New York City, actually. But um, basically, I've been doing this most of my whole life, and I'm just eternally grateful to the artists, to the music that I've been able to do that. Wow. 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 <laughs> well, you know, um, one of the things I'd like to know, Steve, is, you know, speaking of the music and this in- industry, you know, when you first started in the music industry, you know, everyone has that, oh, that wow factor, they're excited. What stood out for you that you were really passionate about with the music industry at that time? Then and now, and that's songs. Um, I love performance. I love incredible playing, but songs is what really has driven me since the very beginning, whether it was as a fan initially or when I started evaluating artists um, to see whether it's somebody that I might want to work with or they might want to work with me. It's continued to be the songs. And about 15 years ago, the Durango Songwriters Expo, which has gotten to be very successful. Matter of fact, the last couple of years, Megan Trainer started out of there as a 14 or 15-year-old. And uh, anyway, so for the last 15 years, they they when they first asked me if I would critique songwriting, I said, what? I don't, I'm not a musician. I'm not a songwriter. But what they made me realize is coming at it from having been a manager and from a marketing perspective, I could validly critique songwriting. And that's turned out to be an amazing thing because it just further cements my belief in songs and the incredible power, emotion, uh, aspects of our lives and loves that are expressed in music. So for me, again, it's the songs. Wow. Wow. So my question, my question, in your freshman year, who was the first artist you managed? It was a band in Massachusetts that was a moderately successful bluegrass band turning into a country rock band in the late 70s. And I came along at that time after having left the booking agency in New York that I had worked for. And um, it was great to be part of their evolution really into a viable thing. They ended up doing about 200 dates a year for the five or six years that we worked together all the way from Maine to the Carolinas. And, um, they, you know, we had them, believe it or not, at that time we had them on medical, dental, salary, paid vacation. We just believed in treating it like a business from day one. And it was just an exciting ride, run, whatever. But as these things sometimes do in the music business, after those five or six years, the artist decided to uh, uh, get rid of his band, his manager, and his girlfriend. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but it was very, as I said, very successful on a regional and semi-national basis. 
and um, we were we did at the time. I'm just just really quickly. We did a 45 record in a highly produced uh, cover with a photograph and the lyrics on the back, and two of the three national trades picked it, which we were. I mean, this was so indie before indie was even the term. But uh, so that was just little exciting things like that, you know, playing, having the band play regularly in New York City, uh, all up and down the East Coast. Um, you know, it just that was my first client. So. Wow. Wow. Well, you know, one of the one of the things, you know, you know, speaking of that, you know, you are you are um, in management of artists. What are some of the things that managers should be doing today, Steve? That's a very, very good question. Um, I think we're at a real crossroads. Music's never been more popular, but never lower monetized. This is just a fact. This is not, you know, good, bad, whatever. It's a current fact. It is bad or dangerous for the future in many ways because musicians and songwriters need to have a pathway to a sustainable life, a living wage, as it's called. And um, when you've got this situation, like I said, music's never been more widely spread but never lower monetized, that really um, separates uh, the possibility of a sustainable middle-class career in music from, if you want to call it that, the real superstars. It's great. There's always going to be superstars. I mean, look at Adele's incredible record with this new, with 25, 4 million sold in the U.S., and just it's a must-have for people all over the world. That's great, but that's not what most of the musicians are going to be. They're going to be in that in that level. There's just no way. Never has been, never will be. So I think what's really important is changing some of the landscape enacting a terrestrial radio performance royalty in Congress, um, finding a way to some kind of governmental funding or support options. Canada, our nearest neighbor, has a well-established thing in the organization called Factor. Musicians can apply, and there's a lot of uh, paperwork, and there's a lot of um, they have to account for what they do and the monies that they're given to support some of their efforts. But it's a great leg up for musicians that are developing, and that kind of program in some way needs to be uh, enacted in the United States. Um, I, I think these are really important things for musicians to be able to have even, like I said, a sustainable economic career uh, looking forward from here. Wow. Wow. Great answer. Great answer. Um, my question, Steve, to you is uh, there's a difference between producers and musicians. Do you think yep. producers also need managers as well? Um I, I'm personally familiar with several people in the U.S. and in Britain that have managed either only producers or mostly producers for their own careers, uh, meaning the managers and the producers. And I think that's a niche of management that is very important because also if you have, let's say, three or four or five producers in a management company, you can um, – very much help with different projects, even for the same artists that might come up. It might be this producer might be good to work for three of their records or pro albums, but maybe the next time it's good to try somebody different. And you can have that interchangeability, and I think that's good for the producers, the artist, and the um, management firm. Wow. Okay. Um, Jay, I know you have another question, so I can hear it. 
<laughs> Go for it. Oh, well, yeah, it's just, it's just going around the same guideline here. And Gail knows me, like you know. Um, so, what would you do? If a producer would try to look out to try to get you to be their manager. Um, what would you look for in, in a producer? The uh, and there's actually a, a possible client I'm speaking to now who's both an artist and a producer. Um, and um, so, what I would look for in the producer part is the ability to see what the right thing is for a given artist on a given project and not be um, locked into things. Because, um, again, uh, you know, let's say an album, uh, artist has done five projects. Well, they could all be very continual or they could be very different, and we never know when something's really going to be the artist's masterpiece or the artist's breakout or something like that. So the producer's got to be open and nimble and flexible to finding writers or co-writers in some cases or finding the right feel for any given, I'm calling it, album project or song project, frankly, for that matter. And I think um, the producers that can be nimble and be flexible and yet always be thinking creatively, both big picture and the next step, those are the ones that I would want to work with. Hmm. That's, that's interesting. Very interesting. You know, um, okay, Jay, I, I, you, you'll get it. You'll come back around. I can hear you. Going and to I another don't primarily topic. work with producers, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so going to another topic, Steve, do you yep. think technology is really good for artists, things like streaming, YouTube Red, <laughs> Spotify, Tidal? What are your thoughts on that? You know, we are in a creative industry, the music business. Music always has controversy along with creativity you asked and my answer is no um tech has brought some great things and tech will continue to bring some great things but i actually think there's been way too big a shift and a lot of it times it feels like our music industry has become the tech industry and this is in the case of revenues where you've got um upside down proportions of what's being paid out to artists and rights holders by these tech companies like Apple, Spotify, Pandora, Rhapsody, etc. I'm all for some of the creativity and incredible tools that these and future tech companies will bring, but I do believe it's actually been way too strong a shift so that they actually control the tech industry. And I'm not the only person saying this. It's been written about in the media. It's been spoken about at a number of conferences. Mm. And um, I actually think tech has become, the seesaw has tipped in the wrong direction. And that one of the things that's really hurting artists and creative rights holders is the fact that those tech companies generally pay out way, way less than they could for, again, to go back for it to be sustainable revenues for artists and rights holders. They built the models in a way that doesn't allow for it to be. So I think it's got to be a radical re-envisioning, re-imagining, and restructuring so that um, the teeter-totter or seesaw can go back to at least an equilibrium there. Because otherwise, um, I mean, for instance, here, this is a fact that is, is just uh, very recent. This year at mid-year, vinyl, <laughs> new vinyl, not used, new vinyl has made more revenue than ad streaming has. I'm not talking about paid streaming. That's made more. But ad streaming, and, you know, that's mind-boggling. And there's something wrong in that equation, but that's a fact. So there's my controversial wow. statement, Gail. Wow. 
Wow. Wow. And I okay, use technology well, all the time and love it for its tools. So don't don't think that I'm an ostrich. It's uh, what I'm talking about is I'm an artist-friendly manager. I always have been, and that means that the artists have to have a way to make a sustainable living. Well, it's funny because Jay and I, Jay knows I feel exactly what you do. So it, it's interesting that you would share this because um, I feel 100% the same way. Well, good for you. <laughs> you got to really stand do. for something, right, in this yeah. life and in our work? Yeah, that's right. Well, Jay, you're up. I, 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 you know I'm dying to hear what you're going to say. <laughs> oh, I, I, well, I've got to have another of this eggnog, because what you just said is amazing. It's amazing information. <laughs> but my question that, that I heard from Gail, you were sharing about deregulation of the music industry. What does that look like to you? Now, I'm sorry, did you say deregulation? Yeah. Yes. I'm I'm not sure I would have chosen those words. Um I actually believe that um we need um a stronger government role in the music industry in a supportive and constructive manner as well as in an economic manner. Um So maybe that that's my quick answer. Maybe I need to have you ask me more. Well, um, I think. Well, you go ahead, Jay. I'm sorry. You go right ahead. Um, as far as the, as far as, um, do you have anything that you can say about the industry being um, unpatrolled? Uh, you know, pretty much. You know, when there's not, you know, nobody's controlling yeah, I, anything. I, so I see what you mean. Yeah. For instance, I'm also probably pretty unusual. I believe managers should be um, licensed, and that's because there should be an educational and professional development baseline that a manager should have to have. Um, and that's, you know, that's not the case. Agents have to be. That's the irony in the United States, but the managers don't. And I think that that would help um, in one way to um, further that. And uh, that's one aspect of, of, of government or government-controlled or, or the lack thereof currently. I, I mentioned the radio performance royalty. It's pretty disappointing that we're the only one of the 30 highly developed OECD countries in the world that doesn't have a performance royalty. And there's a whole bunch of money that's gone on sitting on the table. And also in other countries, they won't pay back the royalties for that that U.S. artists have earned in their countries until we enact such a thing. And we've never had it here, and it's, it's a huge gaping hole. Um, that's just a couple of things quickly. I don't know how we're doing on time here. Oh no, we're we're enjoying this. <laughs> um, it's it's a thing, Steve, and it's great. Thank you. Um, you know, what is the Music Managers Forum, and does it support? You know, does it support artists, managers, and artists themselves? Can you give our audience a little bit more on that, Steve? Okay, traditionally that has been. Managers and in U.S. Um, right or wrong, some countries have done it differently. It's tended to be professional managers, not self-managed artists. This is changing. Some of the other countries have always had that. Some are changing. Um, 
what it what it really is is it's the professional association for artist managers and it has an affiliation with the classical managers organization and um we've talked even and there's a, a a thing with some of the hollywood um agents and managers and things but really it's music managers although a lot of them as you know are solo or small company um firms very entrepreneurial in spirit and nature and orientation um not all of them belong to the MMF, whether it's in the U.S. or U.K. or Australia or Norway or South Africa or Australia, but it is the professional organization for it. It combines things like education, um, lobbying on behalf of things like the radio performance right or when we had board seats on the Recording Artist Coalition before that got subsumed. Um, also working in Washington, D.C. to try and get things to do with copyright and things to help our artists because managers wouldn't exist without artists. The fundamental relationship to me in this business is between the artist and their fans. Everything else, managers included, are offshoots of that. So as a professional organization, we try to help um, managers be better in their profession through education and holding uh panels and things at various conferences. We try to work behind-the-scenes lobbying. The head of our organization is part of a roundtable of all the recording industry uh, CEOs that meets twice a year. Um, and then internationally, we also work very closely because the IMMF has permanent observer NGO, non-governmental organization status, through the UN um, globally. Um, and that's a great position to be in to deal with copyright globally and things like that. Wait Sorry, but that's a uh, quick you, answer. Wait a minute. Would you come back a little bit and share that with us again? It is an NGO through the UN? It has a permanent observer status at the UN internationally um, in, in matters of copyright and everything. You know, we have standing, and our standing at that level internationally is on the same level as the labels, which is really great because certainly in a lot of things, uh, the Managers Association doesn't have standing that would equate to the economic power of the labels. But for copyright globally through the UN, we have that permanent observer NGO status. Wow. So this comes down to even like the Berne Convention and things like that. Yes. Yes, that's exactly what it comes down to, since English is the universal language of business, and a lot of this is done through um, Geneva and, and global things over there. All right. I, I, Jay, I just have one more question. When did the International Music Managers Forum gain this status? Has it always been, or was it of recently? Uh, it's not recently. Um, it would have to be a minimum of 10 to 15 years because I've been involved for 15 years, and I'm pretty sure it, it was at least 10 to 15 years ago. Wow. The organization is only about 20, 20 to 25 years old, our organization. Wow. 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 That's amazing. I had no idea of that. We well, just, it's pretty we esoteric just, to a lot of people, but this is this is this is why this is great. We're having this conversation today with with um, you know professional people here. So <laughs> that's that's great. Well, uh, Jay, I I know it's coming, so just go ahead. And uh, while we have Steve here, <laughs> <laughs> I, got, um, I got I got two two things. But Gil, this question is on the board. Looking into the Garvin crystal ball, where do you think? 
the music industry is heading? I'll, I'll go back to one of my comments. I think we're at a crossroads. Music has never been more popular, which is wonderful. That's going to keep exploding because all these new uh, things that come along to make it easy access for people anywhere, anytime, anyhow. That's all great. That's going to keep going. But my biggest concern, the reason I say crossroads is, again, it's never been lower monetized. And so that's got to be solved. Otherwise, it'll become very much um, the industry economically of the 1%, and it will be harder and harder and harder for an artist to have a sustainable career, meaning even at a, quote, middle-class level, a career of 20 or 30 or 40 years instead of just trying it out for five years in your teens or your 20s and then having to give it up because there's no sustainability um, available to you economically. So I think that crossroads is really where we're at. Tech will keep evolving. There will be some great services and tools. But, again, the relationship between tech and economic viability has to be addressed. Wow. My, my question, the last question here, Gil, is what's more important, the musician or the music format? Because a lot of people are confused. If I understand you, to me it's the musician, <laughs> i.e. the creator, singer-songwriters, <laughs> performers. Did I understand so your question? The, yeah, so, so not the record, not the MP3, not the streaming service, not the, you don't, <laughs> the right. format doesn't matter. Yes. And that's right, because you can stand that. there, you can stand there and sing and play with none of that around, and you're still making music and being creative. Exactly. And that's but it's got to get delivered mm-hmm. for people to access it on a broad scale. That's what the other things you're talking about are. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. You know. <laughs> I know we're going to have to bring our person on soon, but I uh, um, just hold on one second, Raymond. Um, I do want to ask you this, all right? Not only where is the music industry heading, you know, we had an artist by the name of Tess Henley on our radio show, and she said one of the things she's having a hard time with, if you even remember this, Jay, she said that she mm-hmm. loves her, her music, but she said she is, you know, artists have to stay on their social media, and, you know, of course, you want the fan to deal with that artist directly. She said, but it takes so much time away from her. And also with, um, you know, now we've gone from tape to CD to now we went to at least the MP3. Now we're streaming, okay? So artists, my outlook on this, Steve, is that puts artists in a position to have to continually struggle with touring all the time, which sometimes doesn't give them the time to write between their social media and all of that. I want to know your thoughts on that, the social media thing, and, you know, just how the artist has to take on so much before they can really deal with their own creativity. What do you have to say about that? I think you've hit the nail on the head, Gail. It's the way we're in instant society, instant communication, um, lightning speed. Um, That's all. It's necessary to address that as an artist or working with an artist and I, you know, I, this, we do this every day. Um, but it's also a time suck, if you don't mind that expression, and um, and an efforts um, eater. So finding a way to keep those things in some kind of context where you or somebody you can delegate, but that means paying them obviously, can handle some of that for you, 
is going to be critical because I think the speed and the availability of these different things are going to eclipse even what we're thinking of now as social media. So it's going to become more and more of an issue. So it's going to, you're going to have to be more selective um, in the future, I think, to just do it in ways as best you or your team can perceive to have impact of fan engagement or promotion because it's really not a full sales-oriented thing. It's really fan engagement and promotion to me. Wow. <laughs> well, Steve, we could go on with you, and we hope that you'll <laughs> come back with us early next year. I do mean early next year, and share more with us about you know your thoughts in the music industry and you know and everything else. And by that time, we will have launched you know what we're about to launch. Yeah. We're just so we're we're so grateful that you are our advisor for listening to Savoy, and just so grateful that you came on with us today. And you know, we yes, hope sir. that you enjoy your Christmas. Well, I hope you all have warm and happy holidays, and that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> okay. Thank Be careful you so much, too, by the way. Okay, love you all. All right, have a great day. Well, that was really great, Jay. Really good. You know? Yeah, especially really the, really the moose story. That was The moose story was my favorite part. Well, Jay, no, I'm just I'm it was so great. Gonna, <laughs> I'm going to take a – we're going to take a short – break while you give the news, okay? And bring on our other guest, Mr. Raymond Wang. Okay. So would you give our our audience here the latest and greatest on everything? I sure will. I just want to share a, a site. It's called uh, Speak Up and Stay Safe. And I'll tell you about this. is a new type of tech, uh, I said high tech online abuse is not going away, but you're not helpless to fight it. And if you can go there and to that site, you could uh, get some ideas of how to fight um, online abuse. So I just wanted to say that. And uh, the the music news today, Gail, is something interesting. Um, The Beatles, you know, they just joined. We were talking about streaming services. And this this is the Beatles. They just joined streaming services, you know, and they always have been behind. Like if you notice, like when the Apple Store opened everybody, um, the Beatles catalog wasn't available. Until five years later. So this is the same thing again, where they kind of join and they wait. And what's significant about this, kind of like it's giving a stamp of approval to streaming services because they have one of the biggest catalogs of all times. Um, and so it's very interesting that today they chose to uh, stream all the Beatles music. So you can go to any of the sites, Spotify and all the rest of them, and you can uh, get their stuff and uh, and uh, listen to it and enjoy it. So I wanted to. I wanted to tell everybody that. Um, yeah, so basically that's uh, most of the news today, Gail. And um, I definitely wanted to talk more about um, our last guest a little bit because I wanted to share with the audience the difference between uh, a manager and management. So some some of the things are not the same. So I'm hoping that when he comes back on our show, um, we'll be able to uh, discuss that, Gail. And uh Ask that question to him because that was one of the questions that I really wanted to hear. Well, Jay, you know what? Before, you know, um, we're going. I'm going to bring on the guest, and while I bring on that guest, why don't you share with our audience for two minutes what you think the the actual for you the differences between manager and management? Well, it's really simple. Um, manage a uh, management uh, will handle your global business. Uh, options, 
and a manager, you will have a more personal relationship. Um, they will go with you to your venue to play. They will even help you carry equipment. They'll be there. They'll hold your hand through all of it. But some managers work for management companies. Just like if you if you had a manager of your, you know, your apartment or your loft or, you know, your place of residence, and then the manager works for the uh, real estate company. It's, it's the same thing. So sometimes you can bypass a manager and just be signed to a management. And sometimes that works out great because then they have more of a host of people to help them um, manage you and uh, staff. And it's a great thing. Uh, William Morris is, Morris is, a, is a great management company out there, you know, but you can get them uh, to, to give you a management contract. So there's, um, there's the difference there. And then when our guest uh, comes back on our show, he can go into detail, Gail. Um, furthermore, I wanted to say uh, in the news, uh, we had some other news too. Kaiser Permanente plans to open up a, a medical school. Um, they have about maybe 38 to 39 hospitals across the United States. Um, and they're already training like 600 medical uh, residents in their own program. But they're getting ready to open wow. up a, a school, which is, which is, which is a, it's different. A hospital opened up a school. So, so again, I'm going to ask you, like, you go to school to be a doctor and you got to go back to school? Is that what – I mean, <laughs> how's that work? No, I, I know, I know um, I, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, Jay, before we go further on, I have Raymond Wang on the phone, on the line with us right now. You, so, oh, okay. I think – okay, so we're going to go table that and go right back. It's a hot topic for you and I, and we know that. So, Raymond, how are you today? I'm fine. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, yes, we are so excited to have you. And for our audience to know, Raymond Wang is, I think you're either 17 or 18, Raymond, so you can actually correct me if I'm wrong. And, I'm 17. Okay, great. And he is a TEDx youth speaker. Uh, he, there's just so many things to this young man. And we're going to learn more about it. Raymond, I would love for you to meet our co-host, Jay Logan, who's out in San Francisco. Jay, say hello to Raymond Wang. Hey, Raymond. How you doing? Hi there. So, can I call you Raymond or can I call you Ray? What would you like? I just want to know. Uh, anything's fine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, Raymond, we intend to get into having a ball with you today. Is that okay with you? We want to have some fun. Oh, yeah. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. Cool. So, you know, Raymond, we were sitting here and I was like, okay. You know, I was telling Jay today, how do we talk? You know, you've got more accomplishments than we do, okay? <laughs> well, thanks, thanks. And, and, it's, and it's so cool. And, you know, I was like, you know, where do I start? So, you know, yeah, you know, I, I, all I can say is that. So, Raymond, we're going to ask you some specific questions, okay? Sure. And one of the things we wanted to do is just ask you to tailor, like we told the last guest, to tailor your question to tell your answers to the questions because you have so much good and cool stuff we don't want to let it out the bag before everything okay uh, yeah sure sounds good okay so um Raymond I, I have to ask you this you know um did you learn this at school you know how did you start as a young child to learn how to invent such great inventions like really 
<laughs> well, uh, yeah, so I guess it all started um, when I was about 12 years old. I got into research. And how that actually happened was that um, basically I was in grade 7, and um, I live in Vancouver, so, you know, rainy Vancouver basically rains all the time. Um, and so I was going to sleep um, this night, and uh, I heard just the sound of rain falling on the roof of my house. And then I thought, hey, since that rain is falling outdoors and I could hear that indoors, there's definitely some kind of energy that could be collected. And so it turns out that, you know, when the rain hits or any type of precipitation hits the roof of a house, there's all that impact energy that we're not able to harvest through something like, for example, a hydroelectric dam. And so that kind of uh, got me started into my first invention, which was actually a energy harvesting roof tile. Well, and, no, don't, tell, uh, don't tell anybody about that because we're going to ask you about that later. <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay. okay so yeah, so... So so yeah, it kind of it kind of started with that, and then um, I moved on to a bunch of other inventions, and ultimately to the aircraft cabin airflow invention that uh, that um, was uh, that I talked about at TED Youth in New York. Okay, well here's my next question. Then Jay has a few questions for you. You know, really excited about this invention, the aircraft cabin airflow curbing disease spread, and Jay, I'll tell you why. It has a lot to do with preventing the spreading of viruses, uh, i.e. Ebola. So would you tell us about this particular invention, wow. Raymond? Yeah, sure. Um, so with my aircraft cabin airflow invention, it was um, you were absolutely right. It was t- inspired, actually, by hearing about Ebola on the news. And um, essentially what happened was I, I thought about disease spread, um, and especially I, I started thinking about what would potentially happen if you would pack like 200 passengers in this metal tube that flies around the world. And so it turns out that um, Ebola actually spreads through these more range-limited routes. So uh, it's not as bad as with something like H1N1 or with SARS, um, in which they spread through these aerosol forms. And what we've seen with some past disease epidemics, um, just to give a few examples is, uh, for example, with SARS, what we've seen is a particular passenger uh, spread the disease to 22 other people uh, on a single flight of uh, only about three hours. And so it was a pretty big issue, and it turns out that right now our understanding of cabin airflow, even with these uh, the, the cabins that we have today, is actually quite limited. And so I decided to, um, after doing a literature review, looking at what um, people in academia and people uh, commercially are doing and where some of the shortcomings are, I decided to come up with uh, my own uh, high-fidelity simulations of airflow inside the aircraft cabin, like your typical 737 or your typical A320. And uh, from there, I was able to go through uh, more than 32 different simulations to ultimately come up with a solution that actually curbs disease spread uh, in terms of reducing pathogen inhalation by about uh, 55 times and increasing fresh air inhalation for each passenger uh, by about 190%. Now, I'm going to ask you something. Jay and I understand what you just said, okay? But for the average everyday person, can you give them in more layman's terms about the cabin airflow and uh, curbing disease spread, what that would mean for the average person who's sitting on that uh, aircraft carrier. Absolutely. Yeah, so, you know, right now what happens if uh, you go on a plane and you sit down and there's, let's say, there's two passengers sitting next to you. And what happens now is that if I were to, if I were to sit there and I, I were to sneeze, 
the, the current airflow pattern right now actually swirls around the cabin. So that sneeze would actually go around and around the cabin multiple times and really into the breathing zones of these other passengers before it gets a chance to be eliminated effectively through the outlets of the the air outlets and through the filters that we have on board the aircraft. So the problem isn't with the filters. The filters are absolutely fine. Uh, they eliminate like 99, uh, over 99% of uh, all bacteria, viruses. And so the problem right now is that we're not getting that air to the filter effectively. And so essentially with my invention, I was able to come up with this air redirection system that you would install in some key points in the cabin. And from that, uh, what the passenger would notice is that uh, the next time when they sneeze, we actually create these walls of air that come down in between the passengers so that everyone gets their personalized breathing zones, and we're able to immediately push that contaminated air uh, that someone breathes out for filtration without impacting the neighboring passengers. Wow. <laughs> well, I can't help, Raymond, but ask you about the weather harvester dealing with the renewable energy. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so, yeah, like I said earlier, it was um, it was essentially this energy harvesting system that we could uh, potentially place on roofs of not only houses but also commercial buildings. And the idea behind that is to uh, kind of move towards renewable energy, right? Uh, so right now we have, uh, like I said, um, things like hydropower, but we're not taking advantage of that impact energy uh, of that rain falling from such a great height onto the roof. And the great thing about that is if we were to have these energy harvesting roof systems um, all across uh, buildings in, for example, a city, we would be able to generate that energy on site, so it also reduces our reliance on the grid. Okay. Wow. Wow, that's, that's, uh, that's great. So in other words, um, there's energy after energy. Basically what you're telling us is, you know, if the rain is hitting the roof, that can generate something after the fact, and that's great that you, you've uh, – done that type of research and stuff. So that's uh -huh. wonderful. I just think that's great. So I, I'm going to get one of these roof things, uh, Gail. I think I'm... <laughs> yeah, I think I think I am too because I live on the highest floor. You know, what's blowing me away, uh, Raymond and Jay, is that I have to keep remembering that you're 17. <laughs> you know? So that that's... I have to keep remembering that, Raymond and Jay. It's so hard. So, you know, Raymond, right. my next question is, tell us how then... I mean, Jay, you won't believe this. He went into the health field with the smart knee assistant. How did you get into that? Oh, yeah, sure. Wow. Uh, so that was actually my second invention. It came a year after the uh, the energy harvesting roof. And how that actually worked was, so I've got some um, grandparents who were visiting from overseas. And, you know, what we have, we, we, we live in a two-story home. So one night they were, uh, you know, trying to get to the bedroom and just climbing a set of stairs, and you just hear that crunching sound in their knees um, while they were climbing those stairs. Because, um, first of all, they had, you know, like uh, arthritis. And uh, with the, 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 the situation couldn't get any worse, but they were actually wearing traditional knee braces, you know, these large, clunky, $1,000 knee braces um, that were actually really rigid and only provide a fixed amount of support. So I thought, hey, this this doesn't make sense, right? If we're walking, say, on a uh, on just a flat surface, uh, the forces on the legs are very different than when we're actually climbing a steep set of stairs. And so I thought the solution would have to somehow um, deal with the dynamically changing forces on the legs. And so essentially, I came up with a smart knee brace 
which is smart in the sense that we are actually able to use the special sort of material that changes its viscosity based on uh, the magnetic field that we apply to it. And so what that means for someone wearing the knee brace is that actually we're able to provide just the amount of, right amount of support for whatever their situation in and automatically do that. Wow. Um, okay, I need Damn. a knee brace. I need a knee brace. I need a knee brace and a roof thing from this guy. This guy is smart, guy. <laughs> it's wonder. I can't believe you're seventeen, my God. What, how, how do you come up with this? What are you eating? I mean, what? How, you just think of stuff to, to invent? I mean, is that how it goes? Could you could you give us a little hint? <laughs> well, you know, you'd be amazed at um, you know what kids are doing these days. Like you know, being at the Canada Wide Science Fairs. Um, being at the Google Science Fair, the Intel International Science Fair. You meet all sorts of uh, people who are doing these amazing things. And it's not just, for example, with me, I tend to focus on some engineering uh, sorts of things, but you've got a whole wide spectrum uh, of inventions happening. You've got people who are are working in the medical field. You've got people who are working with robotics. And it's, it's just absolutely amazing. I think that's part of the reason that keeps me going back to uh, research every single year and trying out all these different things is that not only am I able to kind of bring my ideas to the, the national or the international stage, I'm also able to see all these amazing other ideas that uh, some of my friends are coming up with. Wow. Wow. Okay. I, um, you know, your parents kind of don't know what to do with you, do they? <laughs> well, you know, um, every night sometimes, uh, you know, I, I come back from school and with the research that I do, uh, a lot of it takes up a lot a lot of time. And so sometimes I go quite deep into the night and I don't turn the house upside down in the process. Um, but I, I guess they're willing to put up with that. So I'm really thankful for that. Wow. Okay. I'm, um, so, um, <laughs> okay. Uh, uh so I want to know, you, you, you've already told us about your really, you know, the first one at 12. But um, I want to know what was your very first invention as a child. Like when you were just a kid, were you a Lego player? And oh, yeah. Other, oh, yeah. <laughs> and then, the, and then I, the other thing I wanted to ask you is how do you have fun with other students? So those two questions. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I mean, um, so, so yeah, going, going, I guess, back to the first part of your question, I, I was always a Lego person. Um, I I can't, like, there are so many buckets of Lego in my home and uh, so many different crazy contraptions I've built. Um, yeah, it was it was a large part of my childhood. And um, it kind of along the way at school we have, for example, a robotics club. Um, and um, a, lot of, a lot of my friends and I just hang out um, in there. And uh, what we do in the robotics club is we actually build autonomous underwater robots. So um, think about... Uh, basically submarines that work on their own. And we actually take um, these uh, robots that we build uh, to competitions in in the U.S. and in San Diego. And I I think I've learned a lot of the technical stuff that have been involved in my project from there. Um, For example, being able to work with some of the electrical components, being able to plan out um, how the parts fit together um, in the mechanical sense and doing some programming. And I think uh, it's just a wonderful time to uh, spend with friends, you know, whether it's during the school year, after school, or um, at these competitions in the summer. Wow. Well, I, I know Jay had a question for you. <laughs> yes. What in the world is the sustainable smart sanitizer? What, what is this? 
Sure. Okay. So uh, number one, it's not actually a hand sanitizer, which is what some people uh, might fir- <laughs> might think at first. Uh, so what it sanitizes is actually uh, your outdoor garbage bin. Um, so how it essentially works is we're using um, we're using ozone, which is essentially O3, in these carefully controlled amounts. Um, and so what happens is that you've got this uh, self-sustaining device. It's uh, attached to a solar panel, and it's got its own uh, regulation and control circuitry. It costs only about uh, $20 to install and man- manufacture and install into, uh, like, your outdoor garbage bin. And what happens is that we're able to uh, use ozone to effectively sanitize what's in the bin. So, right, I got the idea of, about this um, uh, during the, this time where there was a garbage strike um, in Vancouver. And, you know, the whole neighborhood started stinking. And so I thought to myself, okay, uh, number one, the smell is quite bad. Number two, um, this, this smell attracts pests. And, um, and the, the, the sort of the pathogens that are causing the smell can also damage our health if, for example, we come into contact with it uh, either directly or indirectly when pests spread it to our food. And so basically the idea behind it is using ozone sanitation. And what we do is actually ozone is O3. So when it actually hits microbes, like, for example, uh, bacteria, uh, we're able to oxidize that microbe so that what we're left with is a dead microbe and and just pure oxygen. Um, and that's great because it means we're able to have a solution that cleans itself and is also environmentally friendly at the same time. So it really takes the job of cleaning those nasty garbage bins out of um, out of people's hands and does it automatically um, so that you're always having um, this safe environment. Wow. Wow. You, you, know, know, you, you know. kind of remind me of super... It's kind of reminds me of Superman. He's always thinking of stuff. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, oh, thanks, thanks. Um, so my question is, um, what will you be working on next, and what in, what will the industry be like in you know the future? Sure. Yeah. Um, I guess. So right now, I'm focusing a lot of my energies on uh, working on commercialization of my most recent invention, which is the one on aircraft cabin airflow. So I've been in talks with some aircraft manufacturers and some airlines as to how we can move forward with that in terms of uh, regulatory approval, certification, and ultimately getting it in real planes, which is what counts. Um, And uh, alongside that, I think – so this year I'm in my last year of high school, um, and – one of the things that I felt is that <laughs> I quit. I quit. <laughs> well, one of the things that I felt is that I've benefited a whole lot from the whole science movement, um, and you know, from getting me into research uh, when I was in grade seven to ultimately giving me the opportunity to be at all these uh, amazing sorts of events, and you know, even talking on this show. I think. Um, what I really want to do is to be able to give back to these organizations that have gotten me interested in, in doing what I do today. And so I'm taking on more of a mentorship role as well as helping out um, at these various science fairs like the Canada-wide Science Fair. So I'm hoping to kind of um, inspire others to go on this same amazing journey that I think I've been able to benefit from, uh, whether it's directly helping out through these fairs or um, in my various other roles as well, for example, editing um, and preparing papers for a Ph.D. review uh, on the uh, Canadian Young Scientist Journal um, uh, or just one-on-one mentorship, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Okay, Jake, did you say Ph.D.? 
science show. I just want to make sure. <laughs> Wait, yeah, wait, so wait. so one of the so one of the things that I work on is um, I sit as an editor on the Canadian Young Scientist Journal, and it's um, essentially what we try to do is uh, we get we try to get research uh, of done by you know amazing high school students and university students, uh, and give give them their first opportunity to be published in a real peer-reviewed science journal. Uh, wow. So that's just one of the projects that I'm working on. I think it's a really powerful way to get these. Amazing ideas that all of us are working on out there. So you know, here's the thing. And I only I only have Jay one more question for him, and then we'll be through. But I, I just have to ask one personal question, Raymond. Do you plan on you know graduating from college and having children by the time you're like 21? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think college is very important in terms of not only the, the sort of the intellectual development, but also the, the social kind of environment it gives. Um, so, so yeah, I definitely plan to be studying in college. And, um, and uh, so right now I've been applying to a couple of universities, both in Canada and in the States. Um, and so I'm looking to kind of do something along the lines of engineering or business or maybe a combination of both. And the idea behind that is to, you know, first of all, with engineering, to be able to kind of build that and strengthen that foundation for me to come up with these great ideas and to get hands-on with stuff. And with the business aspect is to kind of keep in mind that not only are the projects I'm working on kind of making sure that they're uh, they're useful and effective, but also making sure that they're economically and actually viable uh, for implementation in the real world. Because, you know, it's one thing to come up with these cool inventions, and it's another thing to be able to take that invention uh, from where it's at and ultimately implement it in, real, in the real world where you're making a difference. <laughs> and, 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 so it's, and so it's affordable. Go ahead, Jay. I heard. I can hear your question. Go ahead. No, you know, I, I know this is a question for me and you. How many PhDs are you expected to have before you're 55? Could you just what, tell me? Just do you want one or do you want? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I haven't thought that far along yet. Um, do you plan? I, I, I think at the I think at the very least uh, the, the the like um basically for me I think I value maybe. Maybe not so much of the degrees it, themselves, but the experience that it provides. And especially, I think I'm a real hands-on, like application-focused person. So uh, I'm all about applying the theories and whatnot that we learn in school, and uh, kind of using them and uh, making products come to life. And so I, I think I'm really uh, more focused on the application side of things, uh, which is, I think, uh, one of the quick, quickest ways to be able to make a difference in the world, which is, you know, having that application and um, drawing knowledge from all these different disciplines and kind of uh, amalgamating it together into uh, ultimately a solution. Well, here's my last question. You're 17, because, right? <laughs> yes. I, that's why I have to keep asking myself. I'm, I'm sure your parents don't know what to do with you at times. Um, I, I want to know. I know that Raymond and you and I talked the other day, and you love climate, okay, as well. You have a yeah. love for that. And I have a question for you. As a young sure. man, not just in the things that you do, uh, Raymond, not just the things you do, because you're amazing, but I know. I want to know what kind of world do you want to grow in, Raymond, and what's important to you personally? Sure. Uh, well, I think... Um, I think one of the greatest leaps that we're making in the 21st century is uh, this whole movement with global cooperation. And, uh, you know, we've recently seen cooperation at the Climate Change Conference in Paris, uh, but just more of that. And I guess moving away from uh, 
our traditional non-renewable sources of energy and moving into um, kind of more sustainable development in general. Because I think what, we're, what we need to realize right now, and um, which is being realized, is that this idea that, you know, uh, having a sustainable environment and uh, having economic or social growth um, they come actually hand in hand, and they're not diametrically opposed to each other. And so I think it's it's great that so many people are coming to this realization. And that's one of the things that I started to realize um, with uh, with some of the work that I do through science fairs is that um, we can we can actually have all of these things side by side. And so I really believe in uh, working for a more sustainable uh, future, uh, whether energy-wise, environmentally, or uh, or um, anything else. Um, and I think so. I, I, one of the things that I've actually done is I've actually gotten together with a group of friends that I've met at the uh, National Science Fair that, that we have in Canada, and uh, we founded this nonprofit that's a federally registered nonprofit called Sustainable Youth Canada. And what we aim to do with that is um, right now is you've got all these different environmental groups uh, all across the country that are all spread out, and there isn't that sort of unifying identity that ties everyone together and that promotes sort of everyone to cooperate with each other. And so that's what we tend, we sort of aim to do. And what we do is we both raise awareness with like issues like climate change, and we also um, have our own hands-on initiatives like carbon offsetting, uh, in which uh, we as high school and university students actually go out there and make change happen. Wow. 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 I'm Raymond, we're proud of you. That's all I can say. Young men like you, <laughs> thanks, thanks. we are so proud of you, and I hope you will come back. You know, we always ask certain guests to come back next year or a couple of months to explain where their updates are. Would you join us back in a couple of months to let us know what you're up to? Oh, yeah, for sure, yeah. It's just been amazing. So we hope you have an amazing Christmas, and we thank you for sharing this early Christmas Eve with us. <laughs> yeah, yes. thanks so much. It's an uh, absolute pre- uh, pleasure to be on the show. And, uh, yeah, happy holidays and Merry Christmas. Yes. Well, thank and you. I can't wait till you get eight. I can't wait till he gets 18. <laughs> God, hey, this is 17. <laughs> this is going to be great. When you come back, it's going to be great. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Thank for you sure. so much. Have a, have a blast, Raymond, and enjoy yourself this holiday. All right. Thanks so much. You too. Have a good one. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. What okay, Jay, can can I can I say that we had an amazing show today? Yes. I, wow, bye. Yeah, we knocked we got knocked out twice by both guests and that's wow, that's a great we had a great show with a lot of information and wow, it just I just even I learned even I learned a whole bunch of stuff. So you know I, I, I should have stayed in school longer. <laughs> you, you know, and, and I mean, you know, though we understood it, I was so glad you put it in Laban's terms because some people may not understand it, you know what I mean? And so it was just quite exciting. And so with that said, you know, Jay, I think we agree that everyone is a treasure, don't you? Oh, yeah, we do agree on that. And I think that we do agree that there are one, two, I think, believe, two amazing videos coming out from Pat and Leather. Do we agree on that, too? Yeah. Yeah, there's some great stuff coming out for for everyone. Definitely agree on that. Yeah, so what we're going to do is take the show out with Pat and Leather's song, Treasure. So, Jay, it's been a treasure, and Merry Christmas, my friend. Merry Christmas, and Happy New Year, too, after that. (laughs) Yeah, 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 okay. (laughs)